Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Annapurna Garimela, who is the Managing Trustee of Art Resources and Teaching Trust in Bangalore. Hello, Annapurna, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Raj. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is a a very um, interesting uh, um, publication. It's, It's a it's different than most of our publications. We are, of course, talking about in the year 2019 uh, publication by the Marg Foundation called The Contemporary Hindu Temple Fragments for History. And it was wonderful as podcasts are. <laughs> There's no visual dimension and a visual dimension is needed because there are some stunning visuals in this publication, aren't there? Yes, there are. I think they are very provocative. So- Yes. So why don't you tell us what this publication is about? What's the concept or even the genesis? Um, well, I uh, studied in the Department of Art History and Archaeology at Columbia University. And my PhD thesis was, it was destined to be on um, Humpy and architectural renovation. Uh, in especially Jeevanodhara, uh, and uh, I came to Bangalore to just work and stay here, and I loved the city, and I settled here. So as I was writing my doctoral dissertation, it's a city of parks, lots and lots of little, little parks. So I take walks in between writing, and uh, I happen to live across the street from a park, and I came here in 1996, really, to visit fully and then started living here full time in 1998. And um, I was seeing very rapid transformations, transformations for which I was very, I had very little conceptual uh, capacity to understand. And the transformations I observed most uh, obviously were in temples and the way the temples were appearing everywhere. And then it gradually moved to an observation of religious architecture everywhere. And this religious architecture was not commensurable to any of the teaching I had in my art history program uh, or any of the research I was doing for my PhD. So as I'm apt to do, I applied for a fellowship to do research on this and I did. And it was the India Foundation for the Arts also based in Bangalore, that gave me two-year grant to look at contemporary religiosities in Bangalore. And so from 1999 to now, this is a very long durée project. I have been tracking various uh, religious, uh, 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 new religious architecture across the city. But in the process of studying this city, I started looking at other cities and started talking to people who are looking at other cities and asking similar questions and different questions about the same things. 
And, um, and then it seemed like after publishing a, a, an essay, it seemed like I was really ready to start working on at least an edited volume. And I had two wonderful colleagues, Shriya Sridharan, who is now in California teaching there, and my colleague, uh, uh, D. Srivatsan, who is um, the director for the SEPT University Center for Architecture, came on board and we did this volume together. And then uh, it became a wonderful opportunity to really come together. Uh, and I can talk more about that further as you ask questions, but that's how this volume came about. And Mark seemed like the right place to do it, partly because I was once upon a time a research editor for Mark. This volume was commissioned by Vidya Dehedja when she was research, or she, when she was the editor for Mark uh, as well. And uh, I was her student and I'm very grateful to her for asking me to do this book. And uh, it took a while in coming, but it came together, and I'm really happy it did. Oh, a couple of things. One is good things come to those who wait, or, or patience is a virtue, they say. Second, yeah. leave, it, leave it to Hinduism data to really mess with our theory at the academy. <laughs> um, I, I often joke that if you're doing Hinduism properly, that you have to kind of uh, come up with the theory as you go along, because <laughs> yeah. it never quite works. Um, uh, um, Tell us about the Mark Foundation, just a word. What is the Mark Foundation? Okay, so Marg was founded, Marg as a magazine, as a, publish, as a publication was inaugurated in 1946, the year before independence. It's really coming out of the modernist traditions of magazine publication. It was founded by uh, Minette da Silva, uh, Mulkraj Anand, and a host of others who were really cosmopolitan modernists uh, based coming in and out of uh, Sri Lanka, Bombay, London, and wanting to make a publication that would um, stand for something. So Marg initially was understood to be modern architects research group, but gradually as the publication began uh, to after 1947, it still had this very um, uh, modernist orientation, but very quickly moved to uh, a model that we would now associate with, let's say, Nehru's discovery of India, uh, that kind of publication, which has to tell the national story to the new nation, tell a new national story to, the new, to a new nation. And uh, it, it, Mulkraj Anand and many other people who wrote for this uh, including art historians, architects like Charles Korea, different people um, uh, covered uh, a host of topics from crafts to music to dance to architecture and uh, thematic places. Marg was very deeply associated with the politics of the moment. So when the non-aligned movement was happening, it featured uh, as, uh, uh, as part of its uh, publications, its issues, countries uh, uh, that were uh, there at the Bandung conference uh, in Indonesia. And so did a whole series on Buddhism in, you know, in Cambodia or different places. Or when the Dalai Lama came to, escaped uh, from Tibet and came to India, there was an issue done on Tibet. And of course, they also have focused on modernist things. Uh, for example, the plan of Navi Mumbai and also the emergence of new notions of heritage, for example, the idea of regional heritage, the heritage of Haryana or the heritage of Andhra Pradesh as linguistic division of the states was happening in India. 
So this magazine then also started publishing books and the Contemporary Hindu Temple, A Fragments for History, is one of those books that has come out. Great, that's, that's fascinating. While we're on the topic of institutions, and as our listeners know, we're, we're equally interested in developments and really the, the lay of the land in terms of Hindu studies, um, in addition, to, obviously, to, to new scholarship. Uh, what is this uh, place at which you work uh, as managing trustee? What is this art resources and teaching trust in Bangalore? Okay, so it started off informally in 2001 uh, because this was the beginning of a very complex transformation of institutional cultures where um, uh, historic archives and historic libraries were not buying the new kinds of books that were coming in the fields of South Asian studies or South Asian art history. First of all, they were too expensive. The budgets were not the focus of, of state-sponsored or foundation-sponsored institutions was changing. You have to remember, this is 10 years after liberalization. And what I observed is that it was really complex to get access to resources. So um, in my activist mode, I decided to start a library and a research center for young people, starting with my own collection of 700 books, which has now grown to about 25,000 plus publications, which is completely dedicated to um, the, the field of art history, architectural history, design history, uh, and craft history with its adjacent fields of anthropology, religious studies, and those sort of things. And we try not to buy too much of what's already out there, but we all in other collections in, in, in the city or in the country. But we also try to buy, for example, some archival materials like uh, the Journal for the Society of Oriental Art, which very few people have, or um, old magazines issues. So it's it's a it's a it's all it, it formally became a trust later, and now we work with the institutions and scholars and young people and work. Yeah, that's what we do. It's uh, fascinating. You you really are a mover and shaker in your field. It appears. That's great. Well, well it, it's probably moving and shaking that comes out of need. <laughs> and and we can make the world in a way that I think it should be. Oh, necessity. Uh, since we're just, uh, since we're doling out cliches today, apparently, necessity is the mother of invention, yeah. Um, so uh, you're strolling about in Bangalore and noticing some interesting things. Um, and uh, these interesting things you notice ended up in a, a chapter in this book called Oyambu in the Park. Uh, what's what's that all about? Well, Swayambu is, as you know, as a scholar that you are, is something that is self-born. And it's a concept I was very familiar with from my PhD research, because a lot of the temples that I worked on in uh, what is now central Karnataka uh, were Swayambu temples. Shiva would emerge and his linga form from the earth. and demand attention and a good devotee and a rich patron would come and give him that attention and build a temple and um, ask a very beautiful, uh, 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 make a be very beautiful uh, life for that temple by inviting a uh, Swami or a Guru to come and reside there and um, make it part of a network of other 
uh, temples associated with that guru, that mata, that lineage. So that was a familiar topic. But when I was walking around in Bangalore, I started observing that overnight, these um, gods would emerge, and very often they weren't Shiva anymore, they were Ganesha. And these gods would emerge at a traffic junction or on the side of the road. And this is a city which has a lot of trees because Bangalore is somewhere between the lowest um, uh, point in sea level and the highest uh, uh, in sea level in India. And so a lot of trees were acclimated here before they were sent to places like Uti and further uh, higher climbs, right? So the city has been a botanical, ongoing botanical experiment for nearly four centuries. And this has been written about by other people like um, Harini Nagendra and other scholars. But what I was fascinated is how quickly these, um, these Swayambhu figures would emerge in traffic islands and in parks, especially under heritage trees like Pipo tree. And I would watch this over time, like within a year, a small brick and cement structure would emerge. Sometimes it wasn't even mortared, it would be just a few bricks, and then gradually it would be mortared, and then gradually it would expand. And soon it would have this whole edifice to itself. And there would be lots of decisions to be made, like what would the architecture be like? How much space would the new architecture take up? What colors would come? And these, these decisions were being made over time and incrementally. And to be honest, to go back to what you said at the beginning, which is that Hinduism challenges academic theory, I think that was something like what you said. I have to also add that I don't know if I was thinking about academic theory, because I think sometimes we have to invent theory for the world as it emerges, right? But all this stuff was completely illegal. And the whole city at that point, this is in the late 1990s and 2000s, was going through this turmoil about what do you do when you're expanding roads and the city's globalizing and wants to make itself into a global city like Singapore, when all these shrines keep popping up on the side of the road. And uh, the, the chief minister at the time uh, ordered midnight demolition of these shrines. And I started going secretly at two and three stand in the morning and standing at a distance and watching these demolitions to understand what was happening. But it was so illegal and I was only like um, 32 and having grown up partly in the United States and, and partly in a Gandhian India, I had no moral compass of how to understand all of this. I had just no moral ethical apparatus to understand any of this. So what I ended up doing was I started just gathering data and I went with my uh, friend, the photographer, Claire Arney, driving around the city, doing ethnography, and collecting a vast amount of data all over this city. And I just sat on it because it was so difficult to process the complex agendas that people had, like, uh, and complex layers of, of histories and, and uh, problems, civic problems, community problems, health problems, the need for a space to be peaceful, how, do I, how was I going to bring all this together? I was too immature and unsophisticated to handle this thing that I'd taken on. 
So what I decided to do was just to be patient and mature to arrive at a level that I could handle this topic. And to be very honest, it took me at least 20 years to arrive. Wow, that's dedication. <laughs> that's dedication. I, I was really interested in this. So, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 mature enough. You know, all things equal without the interest and the passion. Um, uh, without that, there's a word for that. It's called ABD. <laughs> uh, that, has, that has to be the active ingredient somewhere in there. Um, uh, there, are, there are a number of, of, of contributions. Um, we may touch on them all maybe uh, a sentence or two. Uh, in particular, there's one by, by one Jack Holly, whom I made the mistake of introducing on this podcast. So it says the one and the only Jack Holly. And he quickly corrected me, of course. I said, well, actually, <laughs> no, there's, there's another one who does something similar who is not me. Um, so the one, the only Jack Holly who's been on this podcast twice, whom I'm sure you know fairly well, has uh, come up with a contribution called Vrindavan and the, the drama of Keshi Ghat. So uh, what is Jack Holly saying here? What is he noticing? Well, um, I think Jack and several others in this book, uh, including me, are trying to come to grips with um, how do you think about religiosity and, and the, the architecture of the past, the, the way that uh, the, these, that experience that's 100 years old or even a 50 years old or maybe 200 years old gets deposited into a place and it makes this that place very special and magical and very sacred with a, a kind of aura that um, we don't sometimes don't have the words to talk about, right? Um, and maybe I will develop those words, other people will develop those words, and maybe somebody's already developed words. I'm not just thinking, uh, connecting to them right now. So he, he actually is beginning to ask us to think about what happens to a place like Geshi Ghat, which was um, made by Maharaja of Bharatpur for his Rani, and uh, it transitioned over time. Uh, it was later on bought up by um, uh, a woman that was very close friends of uh, Doris Duke, the American millionaire. And she became a follower of uh, the ISKCON movement and she decided to renovate the Haveli following recommendations from the School of Planning and Architecture in New Delhi. And she was associated with um, KPS Gill, who was a very important police uh, 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 officer and head uh, who was uh, who in the Indira Gandhi's regime, and uh, the, they when when he died, she left, and here is this mansion uh, that is completely renovated now has gone back to being a kind of um, frozen in time in some sense, and he's talking about this cut and its histories and the way that this cut is dealing with the new regime of infrastructure development that is coming everywhere in India, including in the most sacred places. For example, the gigantic water pipes that are put into the Yamuna River that the flooding of the Yamuna River pushes right to the edge of Keshi Ghat. And uh, 
changes the whole experience of this gorgeous, gorgeous um, uh, place. So that's what his uh, that's what his essay is about, and I love the way he writes it because there's much more in this essay than I'm saying, but I love the way he writes it because it's the voice of somebody who has spent not a very long time, much longer than I spent, I've spent on Bangalore, going to Vrindavan and loving that place and becoming a person in that place, becoming a scholar in that place and having to now look at the transformation that that place is going through, um, through this cut. And of course he has a new book out which you also must know about. So, which is dedicated to Vrindavan. So that's what that essay is about. I love that essay. It's a very, um, it's a very elegiacal essay. There's a kind of uh, melancholy in it, but there's also a sweetness and a door to the future that's possible, that's made possibly made by him because he wrote this essay. And because somebody will read it and pay attention. Well, the um, the article is written in very much the same, um, maybe not style, it's not the right word, but ethos or flavors, the Vrindavan book. And we've we've actually covered it on this podcast. And it's this yes. it's this erudite lamentation, you know, yes. on this on this 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 lost love of a lifetime of his. And at the same time, it's 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 fascinating and insightful. But that the the, the you know the 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 emotionality surely comes. To, through, which I think um, all the more empowers his argument. It's actually not a lost love. What I, 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 I think lamentation is right, but it's a love that's changing and you have to change to accept the changes in the love. Understood. Yes, it's a very powerful emotion that he captures in that essay and in that book. It certainly is a rasa, right? Rarely in academic writing can you discern a rasa uh, and have it still be uh, uh, excellent academic writing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What are some of the other contributions we should touch on? Did you want to make mention of them all or were there a couple that we should foreground? What do you think? Okay, so I'll foreground some of the essays and then you do some. I will do my best. <laughs> well, I, I, I will. I will do one that I really, um, that I think is really beautiful. A couple of them that I think are really beautiful. There is um, Vaishali Ghosh's essay, which I think is so sweet and so emotionally powerful because she's talking about this very ordinary shrine in a small town in West Bengal that has a very, very modest population. And the shrine was made between an adjustment between a refugee population that left Bangladesh and came there and a local population of handicrafts people. And the two of them had to adjust to accommodate this shrine where both of them had to learn to respect that place's history, the saint's history, but also accept that other histories had to be recorded there. And it's so rare to see um, structures that are made by very ordinary people in small places accorded this kind of attention that I really, I was thrilled. And she's a young scholar. And this book is very precious to me because it combines people like Jack Hawley. It combines people like me and Sri Vatsan and younger scholars like Shriya and Vaishnavi and Ramanathan, Shriya Sridharan 
and also uh, Baishali Ghosh. So it's a, it's a new kind of community that has come to write this. So that essay is very important to me. Um, um, uh, go ahead. Oh, sure. One that I, I definitely want to ask you about. Well, let me ask this question first. I probably should have asked it before we started the podcast, but are the images available anywhere? Is there anywhere, any place where folks can preview or sample any of the images online that you know of? Um, well, on my academia.edu page, I've put two, my two essays there. Great. Okay, we'll link In that. And we'll link that. Wonderful. Uh, we definitely need to touch on this new iconographies, gods in the age of Kali, a uh, uh, contribution by Vaishnavi uh, Ramanathan. What's happening there? So Vaishnavi is a scholar based in uh, Chennai and now in America, in Ohio. And um, uh, she is a, a, a scholar who's just beginning to move into a different level of work, but she's been tracking a lot of things, but especially popular culture in and around Chennai. Uh, and when she, uh, when I asked her to write an essay for this book, she decided she would contribute an essay about um, gods that are appearing on the highways that come in and out of Chennai to places like Sri Perambudur, where a lot of car factories, automobile factories are located, but also uh, where Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated. So um, these, these uh, shrines are made uh, uh, and they have new kinds of gods, gods that you cannot even imagine. And new iconographies are invented, new imagery is invented. And these are gods of mobility. And what she's tracking in this is the fact that the priests themselves are becoming artists because the Achala Murti, we always think about in the Garbhagraha, the Murti is Achala, immovable. But they, these priests, through the use of fiberglass armature or parts, or the use of um, pliable material like butter, they remake the Achala Murti and make them into Chala or movable forms. So suddenly, uh, God can be, let's say, Hanuman and become something else. Through the, the tying of these armatures or the, the application of a, of a pliable surface, surface material on the surface of the God in which you place ornament and other materials. And then what ends up happening is you have this eminently photographable image, which is taken large pictures of. Uh, uh, circulated in, 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 um, in, through social media. And there's a constant renovation or revivification or remaking of the divinity. And that's the fame that accrues to these temples. So it's not new iconography, like you make a new God and there's a new temple and that's a new thing and it's done. No, this is constant newness. And the making of newness as a form of worship in and of itself. These are radical things. There's a reason why, you know, this book itself is, is, is uh, <laughs> remarkable in the, in the literal sense. And, and that article I want to touch on for sure. Because uh, it's, it's uh, really, it's unimaginable. But it's happening. It's fascinating. It's happening. Um, it's happening. It's all new materialities. Uh, you would never, for example... Uh, in the introduction, I put in a lot of pictures 
that um, you might see uh, in the academia.edu page in the rough version of an essay. So these pictures are tied to various places which are not necessarily uh, given full-blown essays. But for example, if you go to Sri Najdi's temple in uh, Rajasthan uh, at, uh, uh, near Udaipur, in the bazaars around the main temple, you will see images of Sri Najdi who emerged, who's actually a stone image, right? But you will see cement made into a Srinachi image, tiny version, and painted black. And that's sacred now. And the, the sacredness, you had Joyce uh, Floykiger on your show uh, a few weeks ago. And she also talks about how cement has the glow, right? She, she mentioned that. So we see, we're seeing all sorts of really interesting changes happening. You take the new material, or an old material that's made new because it's being used for making a god, and then you paint it black to make it like the old image that came out of black stone and is covered with oil. It's like time is enfolding all these things into this one small two-inch image that's sold in the bazaar. What would you say, uh, how do I phrase this? Ideally a reader of this book, or maybe let, you know, let's, let's, back, let's back up a little bit. Who do you think ideally would be interested in this book or would benefit from this book? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Mark books are sometimes challenging for academic publication sellers and stuff like that because it's, a very, it's an expensive book by Indian standards, maybe even by American standards um, uh, uh, or you know, foreign Euro-American standards. Um, it has very rich pictures, which I'm for, I, I wish more publications that had to do with art and architecture, visual things, would have such beautiful pictures, would do that kind of commitment. And I'm extremely grateful to Mark Foundation, by the way, for doing this book, in spite of the fact that no one came to sponsor what has become a um, slightly controversial topic to talk about the contemporary Hindu temple. So no one came to sponsor this publication. So I think uh, when people who are perhaps the, when potential sponsors were contacted, maybe they thought that this book would tie them to uh, political um, uh, politics that they weren't comfortable with of whatever kind. But I think this book was very important to do precisely because, as I said in the introduction, this is for people who believe, this is for people who argue and don't believe, and this is for people who move in and out of belief and doubt. That's one audience that I think would benefit from reading this book and engaging with the essays in this book and really thinking about the visuals. The visuals are really, really a kind of commentary within a commentary. Well, they're, 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 they're stunning, right? And they're, I mean, literally stunning and they're, they're intriguing. And so we'll definitely post that article where, whereby folks can maybe get a sampling of the visuals. Um, what would you, what, so you sort of touched in passing on the, the potential for controversy, at least in the case of potential donors. Could you say a bit more about that? What would that look like? What, what do you think would be at stake for people in, in, in the data that you're presenting? Well, look at the cover. The cover of this. Oh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, OK. 
God. <laughs> I took that picture uh, first. I, this is not my picture, but I went to that temple first and took a picture. And a very nice photographer went again and took that picture. Um, uh, uh, and to make it good for the magazine, that's the kind of investment that Mark put into it. So this book uh, is challenging at, in different ways. So it says objects with art history, at least South Asian art history, hasn't really are worthwhile, worth incorporating and very exciting. So there are scholars, for example, Dusri Srinivas, um, uh, for example, uh, 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 I've just forgotten her name, uh, uh, Diana Moody, I think she did a, uh, that's her name. She did a book on uh, 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 the Kali temple in Kolkata and, uh, and people like Joanna Punzo Waghorn and Mary Hancock and, uh, and Shmuthi Srinwa. Many different people are working on contemporary, um, contemporary temples, religious architecture and uh, the politics that have to do with it. But I think this book is a little bit tough because it's so visual. I think it's really hard. It's really in your face and it's in full color. And the image on the cover, which I chose to provoke people into thinking about the fact that the contemporary Hindu temple challenges any idea of tradition. And it is so profoundly, uh, oriented towards the visual that it even transgresses the idea of darshan, right? How do you have darshan with that kind of a statue? You can't even see eye to eye with that statue. And I wanted to really have people, and I think it might be challenging for people who are, don't want to be seen as, um, how should we put it, as, as people who are in any way supporting Hindutva regime. Um, I'm certainly not a supporter. I want to put that out there. But I also, um, that's why I, in the book, I did not focus on, uh, uh, I chose, and uh, along with my editors, my co-editors, I, I chose topics which are not the standard temples which people talk about in, a con in, in terms of contemporary religious life, not Somnath, not Akshata. Right? These are very small structures. And many of them are actually barely there in the visual in the visual life of a city or a place, but they matter. They really, really matter. And the guy who made the the huge Shiva for the cover is part of his CSR project. He's a developer in uh, Udaipur, and he has a website dedicated to it. It's there on the flap of the book. And he's so clear that this is going to be a temple, an art gallery. Uh, food court, everything, everything that modern consumerist leisure culture wants. So it's very, very complex and challenging. How can you claim tradition in us? How do you claim tradition in the face of all of this? You have to actually labor to claim it as tradition. And that labor requires a hell of a lot of work. I'd also meant to ask you about uh, the final contribution um, of the volume Sacredness Outside Tradition, Dilemmas in Designing Temples uh, by Srivatsan. Could you tell us about that one? Yes, um, Srivatsan is an architect and has done his PhD in architectural history. He's worked on um, the Temple of Sri Rangam 
and what happened to this temple township after colonial urban planning came in and to the temple itself. And he writes extensively for the Hindu. He is a regular columnist at the Hindu and writes extensively about architecture. And he also teaches at uh, various architectural institutions. Right now he's at SET. So when uh, he writes this essay, he's bringing in the perspective of somebody who's made temples, somebody who has taught temples and architecture, and is also reviewing architecture and also has written architectural histories of temples. So as a person who has done all these things, he's looking at the landscape of temple architecture in India. And we know that at least from uh, the, the time that the Bidla started commissioning temples and, uh, 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 and other people started commissioning temples in the late 19th century, that architects were asked to come in and design them. So architects have to choose which language they're going to use when they design a temple. Are they going to use um, uh, something that's sanctified as tradition coming out of a regional Shastra? Are they going to use something that's sanctified as uh, tradition by kind of doing a compilation of various Shilpa Shastra uh, uh, modes? Are they going to look at past exemplars and combine them? For example, the way the Birla temple, the one in Hyderabad does, where one part of the temple is, um, you know, a Nagara and another part is a Dravida and something else and something else, right? So they have all these options. But then there are architects also who make totally new kind of structures, which are, uh, which are um, very um, different. And they have to actually look at, they choose to look at things like um, materiality or light and uh, the way that the community is embraced or uh, uh, um, brought into design of the temple. And the resulting forms are completely challenging and different. And those are the kinds of temples that he talks about. So he talks about a temple that's commissioned by a group of farmers and it's in a grove and it's made out of RCC, um, RCC cement, uh, 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 reinforced concrete, cement concrete. So it's this amazing structure that's in a grove and you imagine people that meet there and go, uh, what kind of experience they wanted and what he what this architect gave them. Another architect near Hyderabad made a beautiful temple in which the boundary wall of the temple is pierced so that light comes in, unlike boundary walls which are often designed, the prakaras, to keep out people. So this kind of very interesting uh, uh, development is happening within architecture, uh, within temple architecture designed by architects, trained architects. Now that always comes up sometimes in conflict with an idea of tradition that an architect chooses to meet or to rise to. That would be following a certain kind of language of a tower and a, um, and a, a, a certain set of boundary walls, a kind of axiality into the temple. All these things are not necessarily given uh, 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 anywhere as the only way to approach God, but they have, or, or divinity or the sacred, but they've been sanctified by practice. And now the question is, 
Do we create a new kind of language of temple architecture to deal with our time and the kind of sacralities we want and the kind of communities of worship we want? Does that sound good? <laughs> yes, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm not here to evaluate, but yes, that sounds uh, apt. I think and, that's a good way to describe that essay. And, and fascinating. Um, uh, are there, is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Uh, we're pretty much close to time for today. Um, Thank you so much for taking this time. And I also wanted to also say uh, when we were talking and uh, the connection got cut, I wanted to mention that that statue in Udaipur is very, very large. There's a scholar that you would be familiar with uh, who teaches in the University of Toronto, Kajri Jain, um, who works on... Uh, uh, on big statues. And I think uh, the bigness of the statue doesn't necessarily mean that it is not a sacred object for some people. What I think is really important to, for me to emphasize as we part is that sacred objects are coming in all sizes, in all forms, and in multiple materials and in multiple kinds of spaces now. I think that's a good way to end our conversation. No, it's a, it's fa it really is fascinating data that you, you're looking at uh, in, in, in this publication. Um, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Annapurna Garimela, who is one of the three editors of The Contemporary Hindu Temple, Fragments uh, for History. Um, this is a 2019 uh, Mark Foundation publication. Um, until next time, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the contemporary Hindu temple. Take care. <laughs>